1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy.
0: Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Skylit, the Skylight Books podcast series where we bring you authors from all over um, into the comfort of your bedroom, your car, your headphones, wherever you are. Um, We're bringing literature to you. Today we have a fantastic conversation with Arthur Nersessian and Johnny Temple. Uh, I'm going to give them their full introductions in just a second, but um, I just wanted to thank you all for listening. And uh, again, you probably know who I am if you're listening to this podcast, but I'm Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books. Um, I just wanted to give give a quick shout out to all of our events happening over on Crowdcast if you haven't checked those out yet. Uh, please navigate over to crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. We've got a fantastic schedule coming up for the rest of July and August. Lots of good, good stuff there. Um, You can also watch any of our past events there um, as replays. So you can watch the whole video and see the chat and um, feel like you were there, even if you weren't. So we hope you check that out. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce today's guests. Arthur Nursesian is the author of 14 books, including the cult classic national bestseller The Fuck Up, more than 100,000 copies sold, Suicide Casanova, Manhattan Lover Boy, East Village Tetralogy, and Mesopotamia. He is a native New Yorker who runs a writing workshop in the East Village and can be reached on Facebook. His newest book is The Five Books of Robert Moses. Johnny Temple is a publisher and editor-in-chief of Akashic Books, an award-winning Brooklyn-based independent company dedicated to publishing urban literary fiction and political nonfiction. He won the 2013 Ellery Queen Award and is the editor of the anthology USA Noir, which was selected as a New York Times editor's choice. Temple is the chair of the Brooklyn Book Festival Literary Council, which organizes the annual Brooklyn Book Festival. He also plays bass guitar in the bands Girls Against Boys, Soulside, and Fake Names, which have toured extensively across the globe and released numerous albums on independent and major record companies. He has contributed articles and political essays to various publications, including The Nation, Publishers Weekly, Alternet, Poets and Writers, and Book Forum. Arthur and Johnny, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Big thanks to you, Maddie, and to everyone at Skylight Books in L.A., which is one of the country's truly great independent bookstores. And for all you listeners, please support Skylight by buying books from them right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, we hope you might buy a copy of Arthur Nersessian's brand new book. But but really what it is, is you should buy any book that you are drawn to and support. It's a great time to be supporting um, independent bookstores, which in turn supports indie, pu- indie publishers and independent authors. I'm honored today to be interviewing Arthur Nersessian and talking to him about his brand new novel, The Five Books of Robert Moses. Greetings, Arthur. How are you doing today? I'm okay. Uh, I'm okay. It's still a test negative. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Um, when you started writing this book, which for viewers out there, this book is 1500 pages long. It's the longest book Akashic has ever published. Arthur, when you started writing it more than 25 years ago, what was your original intention?
3: Well, you know, I really wanted to try to capture a society in crisis. I mean, I wanted to, well, that was pretty much it. I felt like, um, I felt like we were heading where we are now. (laughs) You know, and uh, so I, I wanted to just, um, I mean, there were a lot of, you know, other themes and aspects to the book, but in, in, uh, on the whole, I wanted to try to capture a picture of a society that was kind of going through a tremendous amount of conflict in terms of division and uh, uh, and its relationship specifically to government and, and really the distancing of government from the people, you know, you know, kind of moving away into this kind of large entity without making it big brother Orwell, but really more of what it is today, you know, which is, I mean, there's, anyway, that was the general
2: idea of it. I didn't think it was going to turn into this, I have to say, so. And for the, for anyone who has not yet read this book, I I, I think, because I've, I've been editing it along while Arthur's been writing it for many years, and when, when Trump became president, the book seems so, somehow present in a way, because The book explores sort of lawlessness and political tyranny, but something, Arthur, that I think you could have never predicted and known is that your novel, which is filled with viruses and social distancing and quarantining, it's completely bizarre that after working on this book for 25 years, that the pub date should happen to fall in the middle of, of this quarantined world that we're living in, which is absolutely bizarre because there, there's so much quarantining in the book and there's no way obviously you could have known that when we were, you know 10 15 20 years ago as you load it.
3: Oh yeah I mean there's a uh, when people go from I don't want to give too much away but it, it focuses on the specific isolated city and as the pandemic there increases uh, people are forced to have they take your temperature when you enter the different boroughs and there is social distancing and there's actually uh, this the, the city parks are used as quarantine centers for the sick. And, and if I saw any of that coming, I don't think I would have had the guts to write about it just because, uh, you know, uh, it's it's just uncanny.
2: But uh, yes,
3: it was it was very unusual.
2: Yeah. And the, I should also tell readers out there that this book is about a whole lot more than those aspects. It's just it's, as Arthur says, it's uncanny. But, but it's not a book strictly about viruses and social containing. Yeah. It's a speculative fiction novel set in um, mostly between 1970 and 1980, uh, looking at an alternate history of New York City when the city has to be evacuated after a dirty bomb goes off. And a lot of people are relocated to a temporary refugee center out in the Nevada, Nevada desert. And the temp- temporary refugee center sort of becomes a prison over time.
3: Also, if I could just add, I mean, the, the story really <clears throat> is told through the eyes of probably about a, a half a dozen or so, I mean, a half a dozen key figures who become pivotal in the kind of reshaping of, of historical events. And I really try to go from both the uh, personality of the people and uh, to the, the historical effects that kind of reverberate. In them, you know. Um, so, in any case, I just and and it goes back to New York City. The story, you know, relates to before the the crisis, uh, you know, then throughout the, the the crisis and afterwards. So, anyway, it's a pretty broad scope.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of real life historical figures in your novel, though though they are fictionalized and you take liberties. Yeah. Um. Now. The book also has multiple protagonists, one of whom is Paul Moses, who was the brother of the legendary city planner, Robert Moses, one of the architects of New York City as we know it today. What drew you to Paul Moses as a protagonist?
3: Well, I'll tell you, it it was interesting because he had several components that I, I, you know, I, I know this sounds awful, but from the point of view of a novelist, uh, there's a lot of problem solving. You know, you you, you try to create a situation. Um, you try to set, put, put something in motion, a crisis, if you will, and you try to have a plausible, grounded uh, way of doing it. So it, it's credible. Uh, Robert Moses and his brother Paul, and book two pretty thoroughly goes into that. Much of it was taken from the biography of Robert Moses uh, by Robert Caro, and um, and I just found like th- th- these two, this kind of hammer and anvil personality that fit together, uh, w- were just so perfectly what I was looking for. You know, they really, uh, w- they were both brilliant in their own ways, but they were both big personalities. And um, they both ran through uh, the history of New York in many ways. And, i mean i i should include or expand by saying that a lot of the, the characters in the city in, in my novel that were actual historical characters i tried to i tried to basically work up a basic criteria for what I was looking for i like i wanted i wanted interesting characters who were kind of minor celebrities in their day who were still kind of influencers ultimately who actually lived who um, who are no longer with us, and usually died prematurely for, for various reasons—not always, but almost—but usually. And um, and I really tried to realistically sort out what they would do in this situation if they were in this situation. I mean, I felt this sense of duty to try to uh, honor them, and not not reshape them. Though some, I've taken some liberties with certain characters. We won't go into here, but in any case, uh, I just wanted to give a little background on the historical characters.
2: Yeah. So some of those historical characters are are important cultural figures like Allen Ginsberg and Timothy Leary and the, yeah. the Andy Warhol superstars. Yeah. What what um, what is it what are you getting at in terms of in uh, having all these really important cultural figures being shipped out to the Nevada desert along with other residents of New York City but why was it important to include these cultural figures?
3: Well, that's actually a really good question. I mean, what what I had in my day that I don't feel a lot of is that prevalent today, what was really vital in shaping my own thoughts and politics and aesthetic was this kind of counterculture. It was kind of a, a citizen celebrity where these people, they really were, were pretty broke. They didn't have that much money, at least in their while they were working, uh, but they still were able to get this grassroots, um, you know, notoriety and following, and it it bypassed a lot of the corporate imaging and branding that we see today that really has made our society so much more pliable for people like you-know-who to mold masses, you know, the masses so easily into, you know, and using them. And it, it allowed for much more individual thought and uh, you know divergent thought and opportunities. It made this into much more of a um, I don't know j- just a plural society, much more many more voices. And I feel like that's so much of that is gone. And um, it, it and I and I think we're seeing the effects of that politically today. You know, I think that's one of the reasons that corporates have corporations really dominate and. Um, we live under their umbrella you know is that loss
2: staying on the theme of artists uh for viewers out there the book includes dozens of um really fantastic illustrations done by an artist based in new york named lisa archigian and without going into it too much in depth because um listeners did I say viewers before listeners? <laughs> listeners, <same thing. laughs> listeners can't see the illustrations, so let's not talk too much about them. But 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 what made you want to include illustrations in the book?
3: Well, I have to say uh, two or three things. The first is that number one, I felt like it, it added to the kind of general uh, do-it-yourself tone of the book. Like you don't see any chapter art in. Um, most corporate novels for instance and most you know major uh, publicly owned novels they don't have time for that um, and um, so I wanted that aesthetic to the book number one number two I, I always liked that I remember reading the USA trilogy by John Dos pesos and he had like a, a million illustrations and even though some of them were kind of fuzzy and I you know um, they weren't the best but they they gave a kind of they they felt like they were kind of opening the window of the book and letting you kind of peek at at some of what was going on and and that's what I wanted that that was one of the things I wanted that you could open the book and kind of you know the picture tells a thousand stories you could kind of uh get an idea of where the book is going or what the book's about and um you know hopefully it might motivate you to kind of go forward on it so
2: you know great can you talk a little bit about the physical landscape of rescue city which is which for the listeners out there which is the 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 makeshift yeah. city in the nevada desert where the residents the poor and working class residents of new york city are shipped out to after a dirty bomb goes off on the city in 1969 1970 yeah. um and the, this makeshift city is sort of a bastard cousin of the real New York City because it's still divided into five boroughs. So talk a little bit about the physical landscape of Rescue City.
3: Well, let me begin by saying that um, that I'm embarrassed to say, but I forgot the name of the essayist who uh, kind of inspired the idea. Um, He's a famous, anyway, it was a famous essay in which he describes this what he referred to as a military situation city. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's great, the the fact that the government created these, like, you know, they they weren't on this scale, but they still were cities. And I thought, you know, the idea of of taking one of these and kind of retrofitting it into a, I don't know, low rent, uh, you know, quickly, you know, cobbled together New York City. And it doesn't quite fit, you know. It was done way too quickly, and it's it's like a really bad uh, theme park or something, <laughs> you know. And um, you know, um, but yeah, it loosely is re is retrofitted into kind of a uh, again a, a low rent New York City, with a lot of uh, with everything with a lot of things coming up short. And um, let's see, what else can I add to that?
2: Can you, can you, can you say a few words about the political leanings of the various boroughs in Rescue City, Nevada?
3: Sure. Well, it, it basically carries, you know, and again, you know, this is, this is kind of a pretty good statement on America today. It basically carries th- three groups. Uh, one group, which is a, a, a gang called, I think it's called the Ola Created Equalers or something like that. It's uh, which is reduced to crappers, which, um. Oh, wait, is that the all created equalists? Amazing when you forget your own book. There's another group called the We the Peoplers, which become the Piggers. So there's the Piggers and the Crappers, and then there's the the third group, which is the uh, which is kind of the the leftmost group, which is the I guess the Verdant League. Is that right? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> you know, as soon as I finish a book, I try to completely forget it. So you know, I think I've succeeded there. So anyway, so yeah, those three groups and and. Uh, I don't want to go too much into uh, they're kind of street gangs and yet they run the place and they control the people, you know, much like our, you know, our uh, two party system today, as far as I'm concerned. And um, that, that's the, uh, I I guess Manhattan and Brooklyn are the crapper uh, boroughs and uh, Bronx and Queens are the pigger boroughs and Staten Island is the, uh, is the anarchist left, you know? uh, So,
2: ruled by the great Staten Island has ruled the borough president there is the Adolphus Rafiq. Adolphus Rafiq, right. Who's one of my favorite, he's one of my favorite characters in the book, but I wanted to ask you, Arthur, do you have a favorite character in the book and, or do you have a character who you personally relate to the most? Well, I mean, it's interesting because there's characters that I'm attracted to.
3: There's characters who I relate to. There's characters who I, uh, kind of feel bad for I mean you really do live with these people for years I mean you know it's it's hard to describe what it's like for so many years and you find yourself reshaping the characters somewhat but there's a point where they much like a child they kind of develop their own personality and you have to respect that and um you know there are times where they kind of redeem themselves and times where you kind of nod your head and just like oh my god um I mean, should I get should I I mean I I I, I kind of love B you know, uh, the Beatrice character, and um, and I kind of like Karen, you know, I mean, I don't want to, it's not fair to kind of put it this way, you know, Julie, I've had mixed feelings for, but I respect, you know, and same with like Paul. I mean, Paul kind of breaks my heart, you know, I, I feel like I'm becoming kind of Paul Moses in my own, <laughs> in my own life. and I, I want to be more like, I mean, there's a, I, you know, I'd rather be, I don't know, Shub or Mallory, I'd rather be more successful, but I mean, you know, we're we are someone else's characters in this world, so there it is.
2: Indeed. So what are some of the differences between writing a 1,500-page novel versus writing a 300-page novel beyond the obvious element that it takes a lot more time?
3: I was going to say, you know, basically 1,200 pages. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's see. Um, well, you know, you know you know that to me in many ways... This, And and this is what I tried to convey, that this is really, this is five books. It really, because even though, yes, they all, there's a totality and they all connect and they all lead to, you know, go from A to Z. um, And it was, it was, the one of the more difficult parts was kind of, was laying out the architecture and design for how these would all fit together and come to a tight ending, um, it, uh, so there was really kind of a double plotting that occurred. I would be plotting the books as well as the overall arcs of where the book, the books would begin and end. So, uh, but I mean, with that said, I have to say there were times when I tried to consolidate, think about how I could do it shorter. And there, there was actually a point where I thought, you know, I could actually add a sixth book, but I was all out of boroughs of New York. There's only five boroughs in New York City. So unless they make Governor's Island a borough or something, but I, I actually, you know, it's sometimes the difficult part of writing is ending it, you know. And anyway, yeah.
2: And I will, I will say, and this is not a spoiler alert, but that the ending is phenomenal, and that for readers who have the stamina to read a fifteen hundred page novel, and I hope there's a lot of you out there, um, the, the 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 final book and the very final end, the conclusion is is There's some amazing twists to it. Um,
3: <laughs> you know, if, if I could stop you for just a second, I, I just I got a phone call from from a certain ex who just spoke to a friend of hers who finished the book, and, and he said that he found that he he felt devastated by the end. Which you know, I don't really understand that. But anyway, so she was asking me, you know, uh, she was asking me like, how does it end? And I and I was like, well, first of all, you know. I, I i i'm not going to tell you you got to read it yourself but secondly i mean i don't know if devastating is the is the word i would use but in any case i it was kind of funny to uh to hear that because um, you know there's always been a gap between I, I think how the author perceives his own work or her own work and how uh and how the reader does so
2: yeah anyway I will yeah i will say for potential readers out there that there are some devastating elements to the ending, but it's, the ending is a lot more than simply devastating. Um, And it's not pure, it's not a pure wall of darkness or anything like that.
3: Um, I think I revestate or something like that. I don't know. I don't real estate, but I don't know if I devastate, but okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. I have, I have one final question for you, Arthur, which is that the title of the book, the five books of Moses, obviously has a biblical illusion here and and each of the five sections of the book starts with quotes from different books within the bible yeah Uh, i you've never struck me as a particularly religious person Uh, so talk a little bit about the role that you know what why you're making these biblical illusions
3: well i mean first of all the guy's name was moses but but also, I mean, it's interesting because I did, you know, um, a lot of the five books of Moses or the Torah, or you know, a kind of deal with the people who are beleaguered and enslaved and enthralled. Uh, you know, it, 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 certainly by the end, by the exodus, the, the uh, leaving, you know, going to Zion, a, a lot of that kind of comes, there, there's, there's that core story, I think, is fairly analogous in this book, you know, and I feel like That's kind of what, in many ways, culturally, has happened to New York City, Uh, but I don't want to sound like an old fart, you know, it's just, uh, there there was this interesting, fascinating culture that has been kind of, uh, not, you know, um, I don't know, not not exiled, but it's not there anymore. I don't know, you know, there's certainly a diaspora that occurred, and I wanted to, I, I guess there was some analogy in that. Does that help?
2: Also, I'm a fundamentalist Christian. No, (laughs) just kidding. Anyway, (laughs) yeah, no, that's a great answer. Um, So that wraps up my questions for you today, Arthur. Um, Maddie, you want to take take back over?
0: yes uh wow what a what a fascinating conversation this book sounds wild i want to check it out right now (laughs) um thank you guys both for for being here and johnny thank you so much for your questions and arthur thank you for for taking the time to introduce our readers to your book today
3: thank you thank you very much
0: Uh, All right, so we're going to say goodbye. Um, The book today is The Five Books of Parentheses Robert Moses by Arthur Nersessian. Our guests today were Arthur Nersessian and Johnny Temple. Uh, Stay tuned for upcoming episodes and thank you all so much for listening. This has been Skylit.
1: Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series.